gonna play a video game? Bullshit! For those of you that aren't familiar, my name is Jeffrey Wittenhagen. I'm an author, but I'm going to get into that after Kurt introduces himself. But what we are doing is we are recording live from for the VGBS podcast. It's called Video Game Bullshit. Uh, it's a good time, and basically what we do is we record every panel live. We throw it up on iTunes and then on VGBSpodcast.com on my website as well. Um, if anybody knows anywhere that you use on an Android, if it's like Stitcher or something, let us know. We're looking to expand so that way we don't just cater to iPhones nowadays because, you know, it's, they're, they're removing their uh, headphone jacks. So, yeah. <laughs> Not that I'm salty or anything. <laughs> so, yeah, typically with this 90s nostalgia panel, I will bring somebody on unannounced, but they didn't even announce me doing this panel, which was cool. So, basically, what I have today is a Another author in the video game realm, so I'll let Kurt introduce himself. Uh, is this? Yeah, this is probably. Uh, I'm Kurt Collada. I run the website Hardcore Gaming 101, which is about been around since maybe 12 years or so. Um, we focus almost entirely on retro games or just indie and really obscure stuff, and uh, try to go into into uh, as much detail as possible about who made the game, uh, how it was received when the game came out, and things like that. And uh, detailing all the different port compilations, so it's a different approach than a lot of other retro game reviewers do. Yeah, it's actually a really highly analytical book series. He goes really into depth, and what I really like is in some of his books that he has, he does screenshot comparisons of every version of a game. So if he's doing Afterburner, it's every version, and you can see per console port, which is outstanding. I love that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun to get together just to look at uh, all the different versions. You can sort of get uh, an idea of uh, the power of each system, because the arcade games, they reported to everything from, like, the, the consoles down to, like, the crappy British computers. So they each have their own weird look to them. Yeah, yeah. And I'll, eventually I'll do some kind of collaboration with one of Kurt's books. He's really far in the future with what he's publishing. But uh, Kurt did actually contribute to my 1991 Culture Chronicles. So basically, some people might notice this book over here, the complete NES, with this crazy picture of a dude blowing on the Nintendo cartridge and all the NES guys coming out of it. It was drawn by Joe Simcoe from Garbage Pail Kids. And basically, like, I've been an author. This was my second book. So a little trivia question. There's a number two on the spine that hardly anybody catches. Um, I say it at most panels, so anybody who comes to a panel checks it out. But basically, I had another book published with a British publisher, and they folded like as they printed like 20 copies. So that thing went out of print faster than it went in print. And I'm going to re-release it. It was about hidden gaming gems, except for they called it Hidden Treasures. <laughs> it's on Amazon. So if you look up Jeffrey Wittenhagen on Amazon, that's my only book on Amazon. Because what I do is I took this, because I got Joe Simcoe, I met him at a convention, I decided I need to take this to Kickstarter, because this is ridiculous. Like, I wanted a pocket guide, black and white, so I could figure out which boxes and manuals I'm missing. That's what I wanted for me. And I want some screenshots and box art just to look cool. And because there's so many games, when I started researching it, I'm like, holy crap, I only see the box art when I'm over at these conventions or the label. Like, now I see the screenshots in there for every game. So I'm picking, like, rarities, like a, you know, we see Power Blade 2, but some other ones like Robo Demons or other stuff like that that are a little more obscure, it's pretty cool to see what they look like. Um, and basically what I did was is I went to Kickstarter, it was fully funded, it was outstanding, surprised the hell out of me, and most people want the hardcover. It's crazy. So this year um, I decided that I want to do a side project. I went to Patreon with it. Patreon, and I didn't realize the stigma with Patreon that everybody thinks it's monthly and it's a YouTube thing where they go and people donate, but you can actually do a monthly book thing, so or, not, or a quarterly book thing, or in my case, when I release a book, I charge the backers. They don't get charged every month, but the problem is, is that everybody has that negative connotation, so I, it's harder for me to do print runs, but there are a lot smaller print runs for the Culture Chronicles. Now, the difference between these, what I say, is this one is minimalistic, so it has, you know, all the box arts and everything, and this one's full color, so, but I, I want it so you can do your little notes on it, and then I say this one is artistic, and what I want it to do is blow your face off with nostalgia every time I open a screenshot, like any time, and I started with the 90s 
for two reasons. Number one, 1990 is when I came into my own as a gamer. So basically, Mario 3, that was one of my favorite times because I actually played it before I watched The Wizard because I had to rent it on VHS because I didn't go to the theater. And basically, um, I, I was able to, I was like, how did they know that there was warp whistles there the first time they ever played the game? <laughs> like, how did they know that? They didn't have Nintendo power to tell them. Like, it was interesting. But that's, I started there for that reason. And then number two is that RetroWare TV does their own 80s, 70s, and 80s series that they've already covered. And not only them, but multiple other channels have stuck into the 80s. They always start at the beginning. I'm like, let me start with what I love. And I can always, once it becomes a series, backtrack. What I'm going to do with 90, I'm not going to go to 92 just yet, because there's something else I do. Because I try to do stuff that he's not doing, that Pat the NAS Punk's not doing. I don't want to do stuff that everybody else is doing, because I want you guys to get something unique out of my books. And plus, like, he does the analytical stuff. I make it a comic book style, simple read. You read, put it up on the, on the toilet and watch it and read your books. Or you don't have to dedicate a whole weekend to mine. And then when you want something more analytical, you get some hardcore gaming books, and they complement each other. Yeah, perfectly. Um, and, and what I like is the whole gaming community, we all help each other out. It's a really cool thing. Like once you actually start getting your, your feet wet a little bit in the community, everybody helps each other out. We try to you know, make it as big as possible. But what I'm going with with this is that I'm going to do the year in retro 2016 for my next book. And I'm not going to take it to Patreon because Patreon has been a, a hassle. I'm just going to take it to Kickstarter even though that is a separate job when you launch one. It is ridiculous. But I'm going to cover everything that's not compiled. There was 30 NES games released this year on the NES as a, as a cartridge or a release. There's 30 of them. There's like 20 Genesis games. There's like a Neo Geo homebrew that's coming out called Krautbuster that costs $500 to pre-order. Like, that is ridiculous. There's new arcade games called Strike Harbinger that's coming out that Chris Tang, who is in the Nintendo World Championships and in my 90 book, he's doing an arcade game. He used to work on Gauntlet on the Genesis, Gauntlet 4 on the Genesis, believe it or not. I didn't know that until I interviewed him. That was an interesting tidbit. But, um, but basically what I want to do is, because all of that stuff is not compiled. If you're going to look up NES games, and I saw her open her eyes like, what the heck, there's 30 NES games? Like, yeah. And there's over 200 that have been released in the last 10 years for just NES. Um, so I want to do is compile this stuff and make it easy for people to find, because you're not going to be able to hunt that stuff down anywhere. So I'm trying to make some cool stuff happen, and everybody's been awesome. If one person enjoys my books, I'm good. So, like, that's how I feel. And I've had a lot of positive reception. It's been really cool. Um, VGBS started, this podcast started with myself and my cousin, because we used to have three-hour phone calls over analyzing video games. And we're like, we need to record this. And we did that for about a year. We need to record this. And eventually we're like, F it, we're recording. And I moved over to the East Coast. I'm originally from Chicagoland, like Northwest Indiana. Moved over to Maryland, where I'm currently residing right now. And I'm like, now we do these Skype calls that we do these podcasts. We have over 90 hours recorded already in two years. Like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> and as you can tell, I know how to BS, so <laughs> it's a good time. Um, so what are your thoughts on where you're going in the future for a book project? <laughs> um, you got a whole compendium. Yeah, you noticed I when whole... you saw his table? He has this giant little book that he won't let you look in. No, I'll let you look in if you do <laughs> uh, No, No, I have a kind of a short attention span when it comes to certain things, so I tend to work on multiple projects at once. So right now I am working on a book that compiles as many Japanese shoot-em-ups as possible. And I sort of mapped it out. It's probably going to take like four volumes. Because starting at the early 80s going up to the present, like it was all over the Japanese arcade scene. And there's a lot of really interesting history, uh, especially what was... uh, Hudson created this game called Star Soldier. And some of those games came out in America. But there's this whole big scene uh, with... uh, the tournaments that they would run over there and they created all these celebrities they created a movie and a cartoon tie-in with this very little of it is uh, documented in english mm-hmm. so it's cool to kind of look back and see on it and then also compare it to the reception of all these games and when they came out in america because they're all like the japanese gaming scene uh, from a developer standpoint is kind of incestuous so like uh you'll have uh, different companies that like share staff like uh, everything started off with star soldier they kind of merged together with a company called Compile, who made games like Xanak, Musha, Blazing Lasers, and uh, a lot of other more obscure games like Spriggan. Uh, Did Compile do Power Strike? Yes. And Power Lusty, Strike. Yeah. Lusty series. Uh, they're all related to each other. Yes. And uh, there's another company. There's another company called Naxit, which started a competing version of that. 
which they also brought Compile on, so they're competing with each other. And uh, then there's Toaplin, who uh, eventually closed down and created all these different companies, including Cave, which was one of the uh, few developers that still created shoot 'em up up until relatively recently. Which they turned now into bullet hells. <laughs> yeah, uh, they've kind of stopped because this, uh, the arcade scene still isn't that great in Japan. No. Um, but that's one of the projects I'm working on. Another one is the, one of the first color books I put out was uh, Sega Arcade Classic Volume 2 which focused on Sega's more popular uh, arcade properties during the 80s and 90s, like OutRun and Space Harrier, uh, Afterburner. And the second volume is on a lot of their more obscure stuff. Uh, going to their older ones, like one of their first hits was Zaxxon, which was an isometric shooter. Uh, and then there was uh, Pengo. There's a bazillion just like weird little things like Bonanza Brothers. Uh, I forget what all's still in there, but there's a lot of stuff. Dynamite Ducks is actually we stuck in the first one. Yeah, that's a good one, though. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, and then another one I'm working on is uh, a compendium all the Famicom Disk System games, which that's is uh, another subject that there's not really a whole lot of information on. Because in Japan, in order to uh, create games that were be able to cheaply distributed, they created a disk system. And uh, a lot of the big Nintendo games, like the first two Zelda games, Metroid, the game that eventually ended up becoming Mario 2, were all uh, for the Famicom Disk System. And... There were a lot of other games that never came out because they were kind of from uh, small fly-by-night companies that were adventure games, ports of other PC games at the time, or adventure um, RPGs. There's a lot of Zelda clones. Again, not a lot of it is not very good, but the only thing in English you can find out is like the guy who did Crontendo. Uh, he compiled <laughs> all this video and suffered through. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of bad stuff. But I don't know if you've watched Crontendo with. Was it Dr. Sparkle? Yeah, Dr. Contendo is like my favorite YouTube series just because he documents all these really weird, obscure uh, family It's companies. basically his books, but narrated on YouTube. Yeah. Like in its own words, though, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then another one Island. I'm working on is uh, to sort of go through this sort of lesser known. Uh oh. Oh, that's not relevant. That's <laughs> the other panel. <laughs> uh, sort of the lesser known Nintendo games. Like everybody sort of talks about Nintendo, Capcom, and Konami's names. Uh, so I'm sort of going over some of the lesser named ones, like uh, the studio uh, called Kid, who mm-hmm. did both the G.I. Joe games, they did Low G Man, they did Kickmaster, uh, sort of things like that. What's, what's cool is when you cover the obscure stuff is how they kind of parallel in style. It's like meeting certain art, art directors that I meet through conventions. It's like a guy works on this, this, and this. And like, oh, yeah, they all parallel exactly. And that would be the same thing with Kid when I started, you know, looking yeah, at Yeah, and that's one of the, the things I tried to do the most on my website is to sort of create connections where you might not know they were there. Like Compile, if you're, like, kind of was into Shinwa at the time, you probably knew what... Uh, Zanak or Gunak or any of those games are, but you won't necessarily know that they were all by the same company because they tend to be obscured and not necessarily credit them. It's true. So I talked a little bit about my Culture Chronicles. Now, the follow-up to the complete NES, I don't know if anybody saw it on Kickstarter this last summer, was the complete SNES. So I'm doing the first ever full comprehensive Super Nintendo book, and it's books because I hit a stretch goal, and there's now two books. The first book is 500 pages, the second book is 250 pages. Um, the first book's going to be the minimalistic, complete SNES. However, I learned from my mistakes last year. I had a stretch goal of, if I hit the stretch goal, I'll add in unlicensed, pal exclusives, all the extra stuff. And I missed it by like $800. And it was already written. And I'm like, ah. So um, instead of having to do a second volume, I was like, let me just include it all at the beginning. And then if we hit the stretch goal, I'll do a compendium where everybody can give me their stories. I want to see people's Super Nintendo stories. So I gave contributors the you know, a- ability to back at that level, provide their um, different stories. And if you saw my, my video on uh, Kickstarter, I have contributors from all over YouTube, uh, crazy people. You know, like I had the guys from Console Wars do the 91 because it is the Console Wars is when it started, when Super Nintendo launched in North America. But um, I have a lot of people that wanted to contribute to the Super Nintendo book. And they came to me out of the woodwork. Like as soon as I said yes to the first guy, which was Sean Long, which he does RGT85, like he just knew people and it's like, boom. And then I just reached out to people that I knew, like Gamester81 and stuff. And like it's just, I have what, 12 contributors, I think, for the Super Nintendo compendium. Some of the guys helped me with the complete SNES, which I appreciate because there's over 1,000 
reviews in the Super Nintendo book, the 500 one. So it's not only the licensed games, but the unlicensed game, the one that exists. Uh, <laughs> Super Noah's Ark. Super Noah's Ark, yep. And I'm also doing all the PAL exclusives. I'm doing unreleased games that had a prototype. So there's games like Mr. Tough. Stuff like that. Nightmare Busters? Um, Nightmare Busters was, and I do, you know, if somebody's making them, like Pico Interactive's making a copy, I note that so people know where to pick it up if they want to do it. If there's not a known reproduction out there, I didn't put the checkmark boxes under that one. I just put a piece of the prototype board so you know what you're looking for if you find it because that's it's a pretty hard obscure side i'm also doing holy grails so some of the rarest games of all time like the nintendo campus challenge for or the super nintendo campus challenge from 1992 the 1994 power fest which each of those has two different versions with different scoring methodologies um stuff like the extertainment cycle um that's where Rerez is going to come in and do some some talking um and and one of the guys he collaborated with on his video uh, I think it's Retro Mike is the guy who helped out him. But there's so many people across, and I like that it evolved into such a community project with not only, like, YouTube people, but with the gamers themselves. So when we continue with this panel, um, what we're going to do is we are going to ask for you guys to speak up, too. You can steal one of Console Wars Almond Joys if you want, because we have them here. Um, you don't have to. Uh, but it's going to be easy stuff, and it's going to be about your own personal stories, because that's what I like the most in the community, is hearing what your stories are and what my stories are and what you were doing during that time frame. So um, basically, we want to keep it toward the 90s, but as in VGBS fashion, if we get off into the river, we'll try to steer it back if we can. We got into the 80s in the, in the panel a couple <laughs> weeks ago, and it's all right. <laughs> so basically, the first one, and he only knows one of the questions, the rest, so I'm going to get it from the audience first. What is your gold medal game? What is an obscure game that you're good at? that not too many people either care about or know about. What is the game that you can play better than anybody else? Try to keep it in the 90s, but if it's something else, that's cool. Anybody. All right, come on up or just yell it out, man. Me, I'm Mike. Or just yell it out if you, get, if you have a good voice. Uh, well, um, I'm pretty good at Crash Team Racing. Crash Team <laughs> Racing. That was late 90s, right? Yeah. 1998? 99. Okay. Yeah, I think that's what Crash Team came out in Nice. Okay, so that definitely counts. That's awesome, though. Crash Team Racing is an awesome Mario Kart clone. I enjoy it. But it does so many things on its own that it's, it's really enjoyable and stands on its own. And people are still angry that they never replicated the first one to this day. So the sequels just didn't hold it up. Because they, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Got anything on Crash Team? Uh, I was never really a kart racing fan. Okay. So the only kart racing game I ever liked was Sonic and Sega All-Stars Racing, which came out a couple years ago, which is really Yeah, that is way outside the 90s, so. I thought you were going to say Sonic Transforms. R for a second. Like, Sonic R? Sonic, no, no, no. <laughs> Sonic R. Yeah, Sonic R is only known for its ridiculous soundtrack. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but yeah, so um, if I want to stay in the 90s, does Mario Kart 64? count in the 90s? I would say it does. Um, now, a little known fact is that I actually held multiple records in Nintendo Power for that. They sent me a phone card for, for getting a Nintendo Power, setting records on tracks. I found the glitches where you could jump over the walls and stuff before there was the internet, so <laughs> it's pretty cool. I used to race on that thing insanely. Another interesting racing game that I found later that I hold every world record on on my memory card is Wave Race 64. I looked at my memory card, and it's better than every Twin Galaxies world record. And I was like, what the <laughs> heck? Like, I, I, the thing is, though, some of those aren't as competitive as a, a Donkey Kong, for example. So, but yeah, it's, it's really fun to look back on the games that I used to play, like, nonstop on, and with that head that saved your times. And you go back now, and you're like, you compare it to something like a Twin Galaxies database, and you're like, what the heck, man? <laughs> Pretty cool one. So what is your gold medal game, Kurt? Any genre. Uh, it would probably have to be Grady's 2 for the Famicom, which is technically late 80s. I think it's like late 88, 89. Yeah. Uh, it's only because uh, I was really proud of myself that I could beat it without continuing, which when it comes to shoot 'em ups, that's like your first one coin credit that you sort of, uh, you know, remember. Uh, and I, when I got out of college and was like, I need a job, and I tried uh, applying to Electronic Gaming Monthly, I put that on the resume. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I, I did get, get hired, and then, then I ended up freelancing a little while later, and then they went out of business and didn't pay me. So Nice. So one of my gold medal games, um, Double Dragon 2. Oh. 
My God. Um, I can play that with my cousin who runs the podcast, and we can be liquored up to the brim and still break the world record that's standing. Um, I've competed versus people live that have the world record and beat them. <laughs> like, like, they get mad because I'm like, oh, I'm not recording. I don't do that. I write books. Like, <laughs> I tell them, like, um, another one, I set a world record two weeks ago at a convention in Chicago. It's on a game called Enigma 2. And people, everybody says, what is Enigma 2? It is a game from 1979, so let me veer off the track here, beaten packed, and there's only one in existence, and it was at that convention, didn't have a world record. I was there with Walter Day and Billy Mitchell, they narrated it, and I recorded it for the guys that are doing the follow-up for the King of Kong, so I might be in like the extras or something on that, on that DVD. But it was like ridiculous because everybody's like, what the heck is Enigma 2? And, and then like Walter Day introduces it, talks about you know, how games in the you know, 80s and early, late 70s didn't have a high distribution, and he went into it like, it was ridiculous, and he went completely off cuff, kind of like how I did the podcast. Hmm. But um, it was really fun to break it, and it was such a bad score that somebody beat it later. Like, but I was the first ever to hold a world record on a classic arcade game. That's a bucket list that I never thought I would achieve. That was ridiculous. That was fun. Um, so let's go off the beaten path. Is anybody here familiar with the PC Engine? Got some people here. I, oh, Curtis too. Great. Yay. All right. So what is, in your opinion, the best PC Engine title that didn't have a port to the TurboGrafx-16? Uh, all right, we got anybody out here. What was that? Rondo of Blood. Rondo of Blood. Yeah. My God, you stole my answer. All right. <laughs> you know, Rondo of Blood is one of the best ones. We actually did a whole episode. We call it, what we do is we play a game to, to completion. We call it bullshit homework because homework's bullshit. But we, it makes us take our backlog and start playing them. And then we have to talk about it in an analytical fashion on our podcast. So we did the whole Rondo of Blood. I 100%ed it. It was amazing. I also did the PSP remake. A little clunky, but it was fun. Really awesome game. And then I, I also looked into different versions of Symphony of the Night, including the Saturn version with the triple jumping Maria. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which was changed. So what is your uh, favorite? Probably Ease 4. Which was uh, the fourth in a series of, uh, which was very popular in Japan, action RPGs. Uh, at the time, that they, the first one came out on the Master System and for the PC over here. And the third one was on all three systems, but the third one was kind of not a great game. So it didn't really have the best reputation in, uh, in North America. Then the fourth one, there was, at this point, four different versions of the same game. Well, one for the PC Engine, one for the Super Nintendo that were made at the same time by different companies. Uh, a, a complete remake for the PS2 by Taito, which was crappy. And then East Memories of Celseta for the Vita, uh, which is more recent. But as far as action RPGs, it's, uh, it's one of the best of its kind. Like, it has a weird sort of battle system where you just sort of ram into enemies instead of actually up to fighting them. Yeah. But uh, it, it holds up pretty well compared to other action RPGs at the time. And has, like, you know, all of them have fantastic soundtracks. Like, even, even the crappy East 3 has just amazing music. Now, you, there is a fan translation of these four. Yeah, there's a fan translation. So you don't have to play it in Japanese. You can enjoy the story as well, because I know I don't read Japanese. So yeah, Memories sure of Celseta is, uh, that was localized by Exceed, mm -hmm. and I uh, didn't yeah. pick that up. It's probably the best version of it now, but these four are still worth playing. Yeah, it's an excellent game. Um, so since they stole Rondo of Blood from me, um, let's see here. Can't go to Lords of Thunder. There's, Winds uh, of Thunder. Legend of Xanadu, which was another uh, PC Engine RPG by Falcom, which is very similar to East because mm -hmm. uh, it has the same sort of bump system. Nice. Except you can have multiple party members, so you create this sort of like formation of uh, dudes ramming into enemies. Yeah. It has uh, a really great soundtrack. And it was not, still not fan-translated at all, because I think uh, fan-translators, they tend to focus more on the Super Famicom. Yes, they do. Because there's more people tend to know the Super Nintendo, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of RPGs there, but the Plus PC there's engine, more tools available. Yeah, there's a lot more, you know, the, uh, the emulation tools are much more for uh, everything out there, and the PC Engine, not so much. Exactly. So the number of fan-translations out is, it's not very many. So, so I would say, I have two now, by the way. Um, I like the Ninja Gaiden version on the PC Engine. Uh, it's a little iffy, yeah. but I enjoy it just because it's a little different than the NES it one. It has some weird-ass scrolling. Some really scroll, weird, wonky scrolling. Yeah, the, the, the graphics was not very good at multiplane scrolling, which no. was like the big system seller, if you can believe it, back in the late 80s and early Ooh. 90s. <laughs> no, but, but my, my true one, though, I love Spriggan 
the, oh, yeah. the that Siri Senshi Spriggan. I think yeah. it's, I, I probably mispronounced Siri it. Senshi yeah, I love that game. With you have the different power up aspects. You basically cover the whole screen in bullets, and you feel overpowered in the game, which is what you want. You want it to be when you die, it's your own fault. Not because you don't have enough power in it and you feel like you're having to grind away at somebody's life. So, like, I hate that. I love when you can go through and just, like, feel, like, amazing into the game. And it controls at the perfect speed for the ship. It's a very, it's a, instead of, it's a very fantasy. Like, you control a mecha, but you're, like, flying over castles and things like that. And then uh, one of the hallmarks of the compile shooters is that it has a huge arsenal of different weapons. So, there, you can get these colored orbs and the combination of them creates whatever weapon you have. And this... I don't know. There's over a dozen different weapons you can have at a given time. Yeah, there's there's a ton, and it, I like the mix and match, and the you know just being able to choose what you want. You never feel like you get a bad sh- a power up. I hate that when I'm playing a shooter, and then you like you're avoiding power ups. You're playing avoidance, and then you're getting hit by a bullet because you didn't want to get that power up, and then be underpowered. It's like. I hate that with, with shoot 'em ups and Spriggan does it perfectly. Yeah. It might be my, one of my favorites of all time, next to like Crisis Force. Yeah, <laughs> for the NES, amazing one. So, you have any any quiz questions? Otherwise, we'll no. You can go on. What is your favorite aftermarket game for any system? Aftermarket means released after the the system went out of business or it's not licensed, not unlicensed, it's aftermarket. So all those homebrews I mentioned, all that stuff, there's been a bunch on Kickstarter. Can you give an example? Uh, an aftermarket game would be Battle Kid Fortress of Peril for the NES. Um, also, Haunted Halloween 85 that I had at my table. I think I have one copy left. Do, um, do those Chinese bootlegs count? Like that the Chinese bootlegs game? do count. Absolutely. They were released after market. I remember a Harry sure. Potter game. That was Harry Potter terrible. on the Genesis and on the NES. Yeah. There's two. Absolutely. Um, another ones would be something like Gunlord on the Dreamcast in Neo Geo. AES, which is kind of like a cybernator style shooter. Oh yeah, it was, it was heavily based on uh, the, the European series Turrican. What was that? Sonic Adventure One and Two for Dreamcast. Well, that was during. That was that was during the market. What about this game, um, Mega Man and Base? I think that came for the Super Famicom too. That was a Super Famicom release for sure. Yeah. Now, like the timeline of the N64, right? That was still, like the Super Nintendo was still active then, but there were a bunch of games that like yeah, that was a really late release. Yeah. Uh, they still supported the Super Famicom in a while because they had a, a cartridge writing system where you could go in a store with a blank cartridge and they would write something on it. Uh, Which I, I have know. one of those cartridges, by the way. It's an interesting yeah, piece of my collection. The problem is some of those games, since they were never released commercially, like the only way to preserve those games was by somebody who still had that download cartridge, and that's how you get those dumps out there. Okay. Rare. Uh, yeah, I, I think most of them have been cataloged by now. Uh, as far it, as I know. And it's interesting because sometimes you get a game that hasn't been commercially released when yeah. you find it. So, you got one? Pokemon Black. Pokemon Not, Black. You mean, that's on the yes. No. No, you're talking about the D-Make one. Well, when I, when I got it, it was on um, a seed box that a buddy of mine had. And he's like, yo, check this out. It is the darkest... Pokemon game. Like, <laughs> is that creepy pasta Pokemon Black? Is it like a parody or something? No, what it is, is it's pretty much, it's like, you start off, um, you know, you get the Pokemon and everything. Mm-hmm. If a Pokemon faints, it's gone. Like, it's like death. permadeath. Yeah. Permadeath? Yeah, permadeath. <laughs> in a Pokemon game, wow. your Pokemon, if they all faint, you die, your save is erased, and you have to start all over. Wow. wow. That is some rogue Pokemon. So pretty much Pokemon the Nuzlocke challenge. Super Nuzlocke. And it's yeah. like when you die, it's like that's literally what it must all is. It's like <laughs> the game. It's like it glitches. It's amazing and- though. Then it, just, it just starts over. It does like an Undertale thing where it kind of glitches your game out, and you're like, "Oh, my sailor's done now." No, it remembers everything you do in Undertale. It doesn't matter what you do; it remembers that on every playthrough you that you do, like, well, unless you like your reboot your entire computer. Like, I'll be so pissed! Like, you spent ten dollars on this game and you break this. Why? Yeah, and then you restart it, and all of a sudden you have this giant thing. On the screen. I was like, I'll be Marty. Toby. All right, Sonic Apoc. It started off as a uh, PC game that was uh, based upon the Saturday morning Sonic the Hedgehog show. The guy eventually dumped the project on PC, forwarded it to a Game Boy Advance, and it's a full flushed out game with a story about Sonic going into the future, meeting all the characters from the 
show. I have not heard of that. I've never heard of it either. So, so it's Sonic APOC? Yeah. I remember they, they were going to make an uh, American-developed Sonic game that was based on the Saturday morning cartoon. It was so slow. It was really weird. Looking. And the non-Shilly Dog one, the actual one that was on Saturdays. Yeah. It was like a Sonic stealth game. It was very strange. Yeah. Like, it was very obvious that like, it never got green, because like, it's just a bizarre concept. Yeah, that's interesting. So actually, there might be some kind of version floating around that got downported or something. That's interesting. That's a good one. It's a really good one. Yeah, so, yeah, there's um, some of my favorite ones that I like. Uh, if I go to NES, I enjoy, like I said, Battle Kid, and there was one that was released. It was basically like a Zelda-style action RPG that you like, The Legends of Aulia. It was an outstanding game. Um, it's a really like a puzzle-style game when you get near the end, too, and the irony was is because I was one of the first people to get a copy, there was no game FAQs or anything, so I had to figure out all the puzzles. I was the first one to actually beat the game and post a screenshot of beating the game. They told me to pull it down so it didn't ruin it for other people. <laughs> um, that one I enjoy a lot. Um, also, The Mad Wizard on the NES, which is basically a platformer game. But what you do is instead of jumping, you hover as a magician. And it's really slow puzzle platformer. And there's no time, so you get all the time in the world to go through it. And you keep powering up to where you have all these awesome abilities. Everything gets faster. And you become, you like master the game without a tutorial, which is what I liked about the NES. You don't have to be handheld through the game. Like they teach you as you progress, make natural you know, progress in the game. So what is your aftermarket? I never really played too much of the Nintendo games. The only one that I'm familiar with a lot of the Dreamcast shooters. Yeah. And a lot of the, I think my favorite one was uh, Last Hope, which was done by NG Dev Team, I think. And was it Last Hope, or did you like the pink bullets version that they fixed because you couldn't see the original yeah, bullets the, that the well? Yeah, the pink bullets version was uh, easier. Uh, this company, yeah. was they are just absolutely in love with the Neo Geo. So these games were produced in very limited quantities for some astronomical price. $500 to pre-order a MVS or AES. I think they might have dropped with... The newest one they have is called Krautbuster, and you're basically killing Germans in a Metal Slug-style game. Uh, I think they went down to $400 for MVS and then 500 for the AES versions. Yeah. That was the first one I ever tried to pre-order, and it was insane. Like, it was worse than limited run games, like, trying to get one. It was insane. Yeah, I mean, I, I, those, almost all those were ported to the Dreamcast, because obviously the, yeah. the audience for a Neo Geo reproduction is not very high. Except... Yeah. that you can pirate all those and they told me because I talked with them when I started researching for my 2006 book that they're not doing Dreamcast anymore so Crowdbuster is Crowdbuster Neo is Neo Geo exclusive and I happen to have an, uh, a cabinet which I talk about my story in my 90 book and how I got my Neo Geo arcade cabinet uh, but I use I'm, I'm going to get the MVS version of that because it's a little cheaper and it should be fun to play if it's if it's terrible guess what people sell it on eBay for $2,000 you'll still make up your money so like yeah I'll just, I was thinking about taking the AES version, selling it, and then just getting every other version on the MVS and <laughs> calling it a day and like reinvesting in their company. But I don't ever sell anything that I buy. So that's just it. Yeah, yeah I don't know about you. Um, so how big of a collector are you, Kurt? Uh, pretty big. Pretty I've kind of hit my plateau because I've just run out of room. Uh, and I have closets full of junk that if I can't display it, there's not much of a point of having it. So. Um, I'm with you. I've actually started to pare down mine, too. It's stuff that hasn't made it to my collection or my game room. And I mean, I'm the guy who displays my games face forward on the NES like a rental wall because it looks amazing. And it only limits me to about 36 of them. So I have to limit and buy. If I find a Nintendo game here, it has to be cooler than what's on my wall. So I, I like that limitation because then I don't go crazy here because you easily can get out of control, especially when I have a checklist. Some jerk made a checklist where you can <laughs> Track them all. Um, but what, what I like um, is I want to get into another question. What is the best find that one of you had that didn't involve the internet at all? Like not a forum, not a Craigslist, nothing. It had to be in the wild. Could be at a game store if there's a good story. But I want to hear the story, not just I found stadium events. Like I want to hear how you found it. So anybody has a good story on their favorite item in their collection. Doesn't have to be the rarest, your favorite. We got you and then you. All right, so uh, with mine, I, went, I was starting high school as a freshman. They said, introduce yourself, I'm, like, I'm a gamer, I collect stuff. Nice. So uh, my English teacher's like, oh, you like games? I'm like, yeah, she's like, I got a couple. You know, I'll bring it in, they're old, they're my sons. Oh, okay, next week comes, she brings, she's like, come out to my car real quick. Okay. <laughs> that sounds creepy. Oh. <laughs> He's like, yes, yes. So I go out there. She's like, yeah, these are all the games. I'm like, uh, I can have them. She's like, yeah, it's uh, Master System, TurboGrafx-16. Oh, amazing. Uh, it's like a Saturn, like 
action replay, like everything. It was like, what, like 30, 40 games, like yeah. five, six consoles. So I was like, I can have this for free. She's like, yeah, you can have it. My That's amazing. On. I was like, there you go. It was on, on Common around here, too. Yeah, and yeah. I was like, wow. And everyone's looking at me like, can I have that? I'm like, Nah, this is all mine. Yeah, I, I can't like even explain how many cool things I've had just because I tell people around my area that I'm a collector or that I play games. Like, I've got so many cool items. Like, all right, so you in the back, you had your hand up. What's your story, man? Oh yeah, uh, well I work at a recycling center, and one of the things. I'm doing the Mr. Burns for people listening on the podcast. Uh, when I started, it was like. Wow, so many stuff, so many people thought like playing different things. And then uh, one week, my friend, he comes in, he, he finds an NES. Like, oh man, I wish I could have found that first. And then the next week, one comes in, it's just sitting there, and I look inside, and there's a game in there, like a library, sitting in there. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's always cool. Wow. That's freaking cool, though. Yeah. Anybody else have any cool stories? I love the story. This is my favorite part of the podcast. Like when we do that, we go around and just get stories because I love hearing how other people get stuff. Because some of it parallels that one. Never heard of that one. That one's awesome. <laughs> that one's cool. Anybody else? You got one? I, I went into a I think it was a brick store or something when I was a kid. Okay. And I saw a copy of the Famicom game Kid Dracula. Nice. <laughs> We were actually chatting about that exactly. earlier. And that's where I found my copy, but it didn't say Kid Dracula. It said I am King. It had like a stick. It had a, it had Japanese, but someone stuck in English. Oh, like uh, they actually translated it with like one of those yeah. label makers yeah, back yeah, in the day, yeah, where yeah. you so punch it out. But I never knew it was called Kid Dracula until I, until it came out on the Game Boy. Yeah. Uh, that's that was the official English. I, I, I like the differences between those. And Kid Dracula is one that we did a bullshit homework on, too. That one was super fun. Uh, my, the one part I hate about Kid Dracula is the damn corridor where you're going up at high speed and you're flying up that thing. That thing is that is what shaves my lives off when I'm playing that game for like to completion. The last time I played that game, I was playing on an emulator, so I just... Yeah. Uh. So many CV reloading in that part. <laughs> so, just so everybody knows, I'm a huge advocate of, since I'm paring down like her is, I like using those EverDrives and things like that as well to maintain my you know so I can play everything especially when I'm researching every game so it's, it's one way that you can just have it on an SD card it plays translations it plays everything it's it's a cool one way got you man um it was that this one's actually I got rid of my I had a PlayStation and GameCube and a lot of like other stuff got rid of it I sold it to a buddy of mine when I was going to school I was like alright 75 bucks it's all yours I was just getting rid of it. I wanted to get some So a classic flaw. Exactly. <laughs> it was like one of those I, I cringe. I was just like, ah, oh, damn. Well, now he, me, and him used to uh, play D and D. Well, he, me, and him kind of lost contact, and then I met a, another friend of mine. We were playing D and D. So we're playing, and I'm like, you know. I'm starting to think, like, you know, I want my PlayStation back and everything. Yeah. So he's like, dude, I got a PlayStation. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. I'm like, fucking sweet. <laughs> oh, you're good. We're video game bullshit. I'm like, yeah. Like, you know, okay. Dude, I'll fire it for you right now. And I'm looking, and I'm looking, and I'm like, oh, dude, I had this game. I had this game. I had this game. This game. <laughs> Your collection looks he awesome. my buddy. <laughs> Sold it to him. Wow. I, I like I never really talked about it. I was just like, oh yeah, you know, my buddy I went to school with got me in the D and D, so you know the sound but And then I'm sitting there, I'm like, who do you buy it from? Because oh, I got it from Ben. And it's a, I sold it to Ben. He's like, are you shitting me? I'm like, no. So that's how I got my PlayStation. Nice. I actually had one of those when I went to a college back in the day. Um, I left my Nintendo games, and my mom let my, one of my friends from high school like borrow my Nintendo games. And so games like Mega Man 2 and Mega Man 5 and other games turned into two copies of Top Gun, the second mission, and a bunch of random stuff. And I'm like, it, I went to the point where I would never like borrow out a game at that point ever again. Because I used to always borrow out games to friends, and I was like, after that, I'm like, Oh, killer! Like this, so that that might get into a different question, but Sonic. This was, I think this was not from Korea. This was like back in third or fourth grade. 
it was a Friday. Everything was fucked up. I was pissed off walking home. Fuck everything. And then as soon as I crossed the street, I saw a random Game Boy man just sitting in the street. That's awesome. Alright. I'm like, I'm like, I looked around, ain't sure I'm looking at the pink it up. The batteries are still intact. I turn it on. It still worked. Yeah, Ninja Turtles in it. <laughs> <laughs> why would anybody just yeah, why would they do that? <laughs> it's awesome. Well, I found it. It's fine. That was like the classic one where I go to like flea markets when I was in Florida, and I would go and like on the trash can sit in the Model One Sega Genesis. Like, what the heck? Plug it at home, it works fine. Like, why was there a Sega Genesis sitting on a trash can? Like, they didn't want it. Like, and it was one of the high definition ones that people want that has the same connection as the Duo R that I have that I can move the AV cables back and forth, even though it's mono, but yeah. that's okay. <laughs> All right, so what is your best non internet? Uh, it's probably pretty similar to that guy's without the t shirt stuff. <laughs> but, uh, like, after I graduated college, I uh, was working in the, the Borders over in Rockway, if you guys remember it. Um, and I had just bought a TurboGrafx-16, which was great, except uh, the RF on the back of the thing was very crappily done, so the, the, the port literally fell out. And I was literally just uh, grousing about it. And one of my coworkers was like, I have a TurboGrafx-16, would you like it? And I was like, sure. Uh, so she brought it in that it also had the CD attachment and a whole bunch of games. And I was like, well, growing up, I had never known anybody that had a TurboGrafx-16. So just to find someone, awesome. she wasn't really like a video gamer either, that just like gave it to me. I was like, yes, this is amazing. It's awesome, though. Yeah. So I'll, I'll go into current time, because this one just happened about a month ago, but it was a 10-year story in the making. So basically, 10 years ago, my brother is at a flea market in Ohio, and he picks up this thing. It's a Mario statue. He's like, eh, whatever it is. He picks it up, and it's like a rock. It's heavy. So he puts it aside, puts it aside for me. A couple years later, he sends me a picture of it, and he goes, hey, check out this. I posted on Nintendo Age forums, and those guys you know, tend to know if there's something that I don't know what it is, somebody there will know. Nobody really knew what the heck it was, so we had to start researching. We reached out to people from Nintendo and everything, found out that these statues were given to people that had 20 years tenure at Nintendo, or won the Nintendo World Championships, or won some video game convention, like different types of competitions, like a Killer Instinct competition that they ran, but they all had these placards, which this one was missing. So one month ago, my brother finally found it when I was there at a convention in Houston, Texas, a retro game series that happened this year, and he found it, I had it, and I was like, holy cow, this thing is like, it's, it's super heavy. I found out the guy who made it is the guy who makes the Oscar statues. Like, and, it's, and my brother got it for $5 at this flea market. It's worth over like eight grand or something. Like that is, I was like, it's obviously it's up in my collection next to my sealed Caltron that I picked up. Like, the like never know what they have. Like, well, this one was ten years ago before there was any kind of anybody looking at it. And you got to think, like, out in Ohio, it's either somebody who competed in something or a Nintendo employee that moved. So they just were probably just getting rid of stuff, didn't even think twice about it. And the value back then was probably only a few hundred bucks, maybe a grand. That's still ridiculous. But like now it's like everybody's like, I want it. Are you selling it? Are you selling it? No. <laughs> no, I'm not selling it. Number one, my brother gave it to me. I'll give you $10,000. Like, no, I'm not selling it. <laughs> hey, but like the million dollar man Ted DiBiase says, everybody has the price. <laughs> Everybody's going to pay. Now, the thing is, though, I told my brother, I'm like, there's no way somebody could sell that because it's not, you know, I, I work a job besides for doing my books. So it's like, I just love cool gaming stuff. So that's why I, I go around. Like if you see me around here at the convention hall, I'm going to be looking at like the paintings and the crazy stuff that people are custom making. Because I, I enjoy that. I mean, we we do our own custom layouts and stuff, and I appreciate the art. You got another one? Well, no, no. I was just adding to that. Oh yeah. I think the reason why a lot of flea markets you'll see like good like good finds at flea market is that there's one or two things that happen. It's either they don't know what they have and they just see you know, a game or a game console, they're like, oh, God, you know, I had this, I've seen them, like, 30 bucks, so that's what I'm like. Just getting rid of their stuff. Exactly. Or they look and they don't see anything, or it's like, you know, it's a rare remake of a game or, like, rebranded or whatever, and mm -hmm. they'll be like, oh, well, this game is, like, uh, 20 bucks or 5 bucks, 
that's where I'm going to put it at. And then you're looking at it, and you're like, yeah, that thing's a lot more. All right, yeah, sure, I'll buy that. Nice. <laughs> Yeah, that's the crazy thing is like that most of the time people are just cleaning out their garages. That's typically it. Uh, the classic that I used to do that no longer works when I would go flea marketing is I used to ask every single person whether they just have clothes on their table or not, you got any NES games? One guy, I walked into his house. My, I left my wife, walked into his house. Everyone's like, oh, God, he's not getting out of here. I was in the country. And they're like, yeah, he's never coming back. I, I go in there under this dude's TV. He has his normal, like, PS4, and he has everything, like, normal. Under there is a boxed copy of Mario's Missing, like, yeah. sealed almost. Like, it was mint. It had the saran wrap. It was opened once. So I, I got that and Ninja Gaiden 2 boxed. Underneath wow. this dude's thing, he had no other NES games. It was just two boxed Nintendo games sitting there. Uh-huh. Five bucks a piece. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm like, holy cow. I think because of today's internet, they're actually smarter than that. Like, they actually are checking the price. Oh, yeah. Well, all of the console, what was it, the uh, storage wars, all that stuff has brought in a lot of publicity to it. And then you got the YouTube community that's exploded in the last five years, and they're doing hidden gems, so people know what the, the rare games are. And like the last couple years when I would go to flea markets or yard sales or something I would ask them they're like oh you're the 10th person that's asking me that now so it, it, my, my whole tactic died because people did videos on here here's how to get your greatest sales and finds at garage sales so like my tactics weren't that secret anymore <laughs> oh yeah so, so what is a game that somebody got back in the day for a cheap price that's now exploded it could be online. It could be anything. Like a really cool... Chippendale 2. Chippendale 2. I actually came across a sealed copy for like 50 bucks. Uh, like, I have a box. Nice. You got one. It's, it's a PlayStation 2 game that I just got back. Then. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We can go down the river. It's all good. Uh, okay. um, <laughs> I've already done it multiple times. I was 14. Um, and my... We all were friend, sometimes. My friend got me Shadow Hearts. And oh. I know I didn't I was it was for free. He opened it, played it, and then gave it back to me and I thought that was very disrespectful. Oh, yeah. I played it, had fun, sold it probably when I was eighteen, and today I just got it back. I've been wow. looking for it for so long. Was it your original copy? Yeah, it's the Bible. Okay. It's the whole Which is good. It's, it, that's the nostalgia well, yeah. side. Well, that's the nostalgia. Right now, and honestly, on like Amazon and all the other big ones, it was hundred something dollars, and so very happy today. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. I love when you get your classic games back. Even the original ones. That makes it even better. Um, I think this is a, just a quick story. But, sure. Um, my friend gave me um, Pokemon Fire Red for like five dollars. But nowadays, any Pokemon game you're gonna get is gonna be over thirty dollars. Absolutely, so, absolutely. So like my friend was like, "Oh, he ripped you off." I was like, "No, no, Pokemon." I I won at the end of the bargain. So so Culture Chronicle style. Back in the day, um, when I was a kid, we, we used to go yard sailing. Like, that's what I did growing up. That's how I learned how to do it. I, I, w- I didn't want to pay a dollar for stadium events because there's a quarter on Funko Land, you know, on the old paper. <laughs> like, I'm that kind of guy. Um, but the thing is, though, is it, at a yard sale, I came across, and I was like nine or something, I came across Chiller, like, for like for a buck. And, you know, that's exploded in price a little bit. Yeah, and, and as a nine-year-old, I'm seeing their decapitating bodies. And as you can see, my shirt reading is fun with the Necronomicon Ex Mortis, the Book of the Dead. Like, it's definitely affected me, that. And, and then our, you know, uh, family movies, Dumbo, and it, like, when they tape Dumbo on the tape, and then it goes out, and it comes into Jason 6. Jason lives, and he's on top of a camper, and I see this when I'm a kid. Like, I'm like, no wonder why I'm so messed up in the head. It's great. <laughs> So what is yours? So we've talked a lot about compile shooters again. So he loves his compile shooters. Mine would be Musha for the Genesis, uh, which I I wasn't too familiar with it except uh, you know one of the first people I met on the internet was Rob Strangman, who uh, he used to do a Splatterhouse page and a Ghost and Goblins page, and he contributed to one of those books. And he did was it Memoirs of a Virtual? Yeah, he wrote a book called Memoirs of a Virtual Caveman, and he knows he's talking a about, about his Shoot him up. Super cool book. Like, check it out. And he did write in my 91 book, too. I'd reach out to any of the cool authors. and. Uh, but he had recommended this game to me. And this was in the late 90s. And even back then, it was kind of hard to find. Like, I was only able to get it by watching eBay for several months. And even I got it for, like, maybe 10 bucks, along with, like, a Madden game, <laughs> which is a uh, box and a manual. And now that's, like, a $300, $400 game, I think. 
But even like if you, there's been a lot of price explosions lately. They're just like random things that I would pick up when GameStop was clearing out their stuff. Like I think I got a game called Ribbit King for a couple dollars, and that was oh, like yeah. a fifty dollar game. Yeah, that's a like, decent GameCube yeah. stuff. Like it, it just is weird. It happens like yeah. that, and I, I don't know what causes it for a game like Ribbit King. But so we got we got the five minute warning. Um, I want to ask one question, and it can be anybody who answers it. What do you think is the next console in the next generation that's going to blow up in price? Because right now it was NES, then Super Nintendo got stupid. Do you think it's going to move over to the Genesis? It's kind of done it's it. Kind of happening. It's kind of happening. Do you think it's going to be PS? One, is it going to be Game Boy, or is it going to be like PS1? What do you think? We got just go real quick, no stories though, because we only got five. 3 d 3DO. Oh my god. I'm serious. He is. Go. Maybe that, but probably PS1. I, I think so too. Like the PS1 hasn't really held up to me graphically, but there are some amazing games on there, and the stories are outstanding on like the Final Fantasy VII's type thing. But there's some obscure stuff out there. That people didn't really play. Sonic. Genesis. Genesis. Nice. And believe it or not, I do a poll after I beat all of these. After I complete, beat it. Yeah, right, beat it. Um, after I complete my books, I do a poll, a backer poll. And it was Super Nintendo won by like 99% last time. Yeah. Now at 75%, Genesis won. So far. There's still a couple people, but I don't think they're going to take the lead. Second place was PS1 and the Game Boy in a tie, believe it or not. Uh, the, I'm dreading the PS1 and PS2 libraries on the complete series, but I'll do it. It just might take me longer, like, uh, and I might have to do a Madden page or something instead of doing every game because that was yeah. a pain on the Super Nintendo, and that's when it started. My God. Um, so, Kurt, where can people find you? Uh, HardcoreGaming101.net is uh, my website's URL, and I'm going to be here tomorrow selling books and other sort of video games. That's excellent. Thanks for coming on the panel. Um, you can find me. Yeah, yeah, platform. Yeah! <laughs> Gotta get it. Uh, you can find me on HagensAlley.com. That's my book, like, little logo company. Also, VGBSPodcast.com goes to the same site. Also, CompleteNES or CompleteSNES.com. They all go to the same site. Uh, it all goes to my blog. Um, I am going to try to launch this winter a second book called NES Oddities, Rarities, and Obscurities called Games You Haven't Played. I'm going to cover all the stuff that I didn't get in the complete NES, like the unlicensed, but I'm going to get, I have about 180 with Rob, uh, Famicom games that you don't need to know Japanese to play, as well as all 200 plus NES homebrews that have been coming out. I want to highlight these guys, because these guys put in their blood, sweat, and tears into this stuff, and nobody really highlights it or compiles it all. Compile. I'm going to try to take it to Kickstarter in conjunction with the NES Mini because that would just be smart. Like, But I have to have both SNES books out there. That's like my one thing. I have to do that. I don't like to do another book before that one's out. Um, the only thing is, is that there is something that nobody mentioned with my NES book. There is a homebrew NES game where you collect video games coming out that's made by the guy. It's called Jeffrey Wittenhagen's Black Box Challenge. It's the first ever four-way scrolling RPG, for, and it's going to be an NES RPG. So that should be coming. He is working on an RPG, so it's taking him a lot longer than expected, but that's to be expected. Like, I, I didn't expect any less, and he's past his due date, but I, that's why also why I didn't do a Super Nintendo game with my book. Uh, thanks, everybody, for coming, and let's go.